we all have our own climate story and our own relationship to climate and climate change. And we use different words for those relationships and different words for the experiences that we have. Hey folks, welcome to the latest episode of the Ecosystem Member Podcast. I came across this episode's guest through inclusion in the Grist 50 list of 50 climate leaders driving fresh solutions to our planet's biggest problems for 2023. Liliana Ayala is the first ever climate justice director for the city of Seattle, Washington's Office of Sustainability and Environment. As you'll hear in the episode, her role is varied but founded on engaging a wide variety of communities, including fellow policymakers around the world, on issues of environmental and climate justice. Prior to this role, Liliana worked for Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, leading on climate and environmental policy and outreach, and worked directly in ecology on projects including restoring the West Duwamish Greenbelt, Seattle's largest contiguous forest. Liliana's diverse experience led to what I think is a really interesting conversation about her role for the city of Seattle, how her relationship with nature guides and informs her work in community engagement, and how slowing down might be the key to effectively fighting the climate crisis. There are a handful of recommended resources at the end of the episode that are linked in the show notes. I also included a link to the podcast project Liliana helped lead that examined the question, what would it look like within the next 50 years for Seattle to become a place where both trees and humans grow old? It's a fascinating listen, and I hope you'll check it out after this episode. Without further delay, here's the latest episode of the Ecosystem Member Podcast, with the city of Seattle's climate justice director, Liliana Ayala. Today on the Ecosystem Member Podcast, we are really excited to have Liliana Ayala, climate justice director for the city of Seattle's Office of Sustainability and Environment. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to start with a quote I found from you on the Nature Conservancy of Washington's website. You said, I was raised with values around being in relationship with nature and the earth, knowing that I'm not a separate actor in nature, rather part of it. My family taught me to care for Mother Earth because she cares for us. Can you talk more about those values and how you think about your relationship with nature today? When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, They would walk me around their garden, and I would help my grandmother water the plants. They would teach me the names of the plants. Um, I learned about peonies and marigolds and pansies, about growing jalapenos and cilantro. And in that time with them, they would share little tidbits um, that they knew about biology and about plants and botany. So at a young age, I learned that peonies would secrete um, like a sweet nectar and attract ants and the ants would feed off that nectar. But simultaneously, they would protect um, those buds from uh, being eaten from other insects. So they had a a bit of a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, So it was lessons like this that my grandparents would just like teach me um, as a young person. And they really stuck with me um, as I as I started to get older. 
my father also had a, a beautiful garden and he spent a lot of time tending to it. Um, and we would have neighbors come and trade seeds with him. He would grow Mexican chili species. And we had a Thai neighbor who would come by and trade Thai chili species with him. Um, and so I would just kind of like see how the adults in my life were moving um, and how they were sharing knowledge with with me and with our neighbors and how they were building relationship around um, a shared value of nature and and the planet. And so that uh, really shaped who I am and how I look at the world, the connections and lessons with like my ancestry and my culture and how that informed building relationship with others around me um, is really what I bring to the table when I'm um, working on climate and climate justice policy and programs. As we talked about, you're the city of Seattle's first climate justice director. What does the sort of day-to-day work of a climate justice director look like? Each day as a climate justice director for the city of Seattle is different. It includes anything from um, filling out reimbursement paperwork, um, signing contracts, uh, to spending time with my team and um, uh, my direct reports, uh, thinking about strategies for alleviating the impacts of climate change on Seattle's most vulnerable communities. Um, And then we think tactically about what does that look like on a neighborhood level? What does that look like and mean and feel like um, for specific communities and specific populations? So I think the, the thing that carries through from day to day is that I get the privilege to work with people who have really big hearts, who care about their community, um, who deeply care about the planet, and who are motivated by dreaming about and implementing ideas and solutions that can bring us forth into a better future. We're constantly thinking about what is the world that we want to live in and how can we make that happen? that is braided in in my everyday work. Um, Even when I'm signing paperwork on (laughs) reimbursements, um, all of these things are uh, in honor of addressing the impacts of climate change and trying our best to transition away from the behaviors that have gotten us into the climate crisis to begin with. Who are you often working with? Because I I imagine, especially in a city like Seattle, which is a a big urban population, there can be a lot of different factors, everything from car usage to, you know, even agriculture and things like that. So who are you working with uh, in, in your role? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. In my role, I'm working with a, a lot of different folks. The way that we do our work centers our community partners. And as I mentioned earlier, we absolutely center the voices and experiences and solutions of folks who are disproportionately impacted by the um, climate crisis and by environmental injustice. So, you know, nonprofit leaders and um, community leaders, community groups, those are folks who we uh, are working with day in and day out. 
I also am working with other policy folks within the city of Seattle, within our county and state government and federal government, and also um, am, feel really lucky to be able to uh, have access to uh, thought leaders in other cities around the world. Folks in cities and in government really lean on each other uh, to share best practices, and we then take those best practices and bring that knowledge back to our teams within government, but with our community partners as well, um, to really get a sense of might this might might this program that worked in Bogota, Colombia, be applicable for us in Seattle, Washington. If so, what aspects of that might uh, work for us here and what aspects might not work for us here? What are what is unique to that city that might not carry over um, to Seattle? We're also working with folks in academia. Um, we have partners at the University of Washington. We have conversations with drayage truck drivers and uh, building owners. Um, it really runs the gambit. Um, and I think that it's important for us to be thoughtful and intentional about all of the folks who are impacted in some way by the climate crisis, because the impacts are being felt by everybody. And so I, I think, you know, climate change um is a bit of a through line for many different constituencies. I know in some of your past life, you spent time leading climate environmental policy and outreach for Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. So you you talked a little bit about making sure those, I guess, underrepresented or marginalized voices are included in this conversation. Like, What did you learn in your time in that role about helping bringing those those voices and those people into the conversation? Working for Congresswoman Jayapal was incredible. Uh, it was a wonderful learning experience, and it was the first time that I worked for uh, somebody who had shared identities as I did. And so it was revolutionary in the sense that I didn't have to spend a lot of time explaining my methodology or why it was important for me to center underrepresented voices. That was an expectation of the work and how we did our work. And because of that, it allowed me more energy and bandwidth and just space mentally to think about the solutions in an innovative way versus trying to justify why we should do work in a certain way. And so I think the support that the Congresswoman had and the expectation allowed me to more quickly build stronger relationships across different constituencies um, and deeper relationships, which was uh, incredible. And many of those relationships continue to carry over in my work in local government as well. Um, and so that that continuity and understanding of issues on the ground from the folks that are experiencing and, and, and leading the work uh, locally has been really pivotal for me in my career. Sort of with that engagement and outreach and forming those relationships, you know, we're thinking about marginalized and underrepresented communities in these conversations. And oftentimes I think they've got so much on their plate already, as many of us do in this kind of insane world where the news seems to be changing every single day. But many people, you know, it, it might be a, a matter of working multiple jobs and they're living on a, a piece of land that's near, you know, in, in cases of like California and Texas, where I live, like near an oil refinery and, and having adverse health effects to that. So how do you help 
I guess, how do you engage with, with that community when it might not necessarily, climate might not be necessarily on the top of their agenda? I'm really glad you asked this question. Uh, I'll start by saying we all have our own climate story and our own relationship to climate and climate change. And we use different words for those relationships and different words for the experiences that we have. My family is from South Texas, and um, the impacts of fracking in in South Texas on the Eagle Eagle Ford Shale um, is really front and centered um, for for them. And I see it from a different perspective, and not the same perspective as they do. I think a lot of my family members may see the investments in in fracking and the jobs that come with it as an opportunity to build generational wealth and. And that is something I completely understand and intimately know that it's hard for some of our communities to get a foothold in steady jobs um, to provide for themselves and their families. And so the starting point in the conversations for me always start in deep listening and um, centering empathy and trying to find a shared understanding despite the difference in perspectives. So while I believe that we have to find ways to transition off of fossil fuels, I have very close family members who are making a living off of those operations. And so I I think the conversation is less about me trying to impress upon them my beliefs and values, but trying to have a thoughtful conversation to identify shared values and beliefs and um, really push each other in having growthful conversation. So we're not going to get to the same place, you know, at the same time in terms of our thinking and strategies. But I guess I feel really strongly in my belief in humanity and am willing to take the time to get there together, even if it's at a slower pace. That's amazing. I, I really like that attitude. I think oftentimes people feel the urgency of, of, you know, the climate crisis breathing down their neck, but taking time to listen, having the patience, I think is a good reminder for, for all of us and kind of leads into another part of your background I wanted to talk about. You know, nature itself doesn't always work at an incredible pace. And you know this quite well, like you've worked on habitat restoration, trail building. I think there was one project with the West Duwamish Greenbelt, which is Seattle's largest contiguous forest. You you have this relationship with nature. You worked on this direct role with ecology and engagement as well. And then you're also now working on innovative solutions. Like, how does all of that come together and give you, I guess, a unique perspective, probably compared to some of the policy folks and other folks that you're working with? Like, how does that all come together in your job as climate justice director? Yeah, they, thank you for that question. I'll I'll also add, when I uh, went to school, I got my bachelor's in of arts in English. And when I was in my early 20s, I wanted to to teach literature. And uh, I love poetry. And so to me, that relationship that I have with creative writing and storytelling and the written word is absolutely connected to my experiences in nature and like hands in the soil. And the lessons that I learned doing ecology work was to step back and look at the problem and the solution from a systems-based perspective. And so 
seeing the work from a, an ecosystem-based perspective and finding the poetry and the connection of these disparate parts, which are actually not disparate, they're all interrelated and part of a system, allow me to take those skill sets, that thinking into the policy work and into my relationships with different constituencies that we need to bring together um, if we're, we're going to address the climate crisis. So like absolutely system thinking is something that I've learned from that. Um, I've learned to have patience to zoom out um, and look at the system, identify the interdependencies and the relationships to inform the strategy and the tactical decisions um, around policy design and implementation. Um, I've learned lessons around slowing down a tree grows at a tree's pace. And so the lessons that nature has to teach us are plenty, but we need to slow down to be able to listen to that. Um, I think often uh, we as humans value instant gratification. We want a solution yesterday and nature doesn't always work that way. Um, and I'm constantly reminded of that when um, I'm feeling overwhelmed by competing priorities. Um, sometimes there's manufactured urgency, right? Like if we don't take a beat to slow down and ask, why are we doing that? For who? How are we going to do that? Then we get caught up in this endless cycle of like, we need to make a decision now. <laughs> and so uh, slowing down um, has really been a, a lesson that, that has served me well. Um, and then also everything is in a cycle. There's a season for everything and nothing is meant to last forever. And nature teaches that to us every day. The composition and decomposition process is something that's really beautiful. And I tried to remind myself of that um, and remind my colleagues of that. It's a lot of pressure to put on ourselves to come up with a solution that is 100% perfect and that's going to last forever, when the reality is the things that were true five years ago may not be true today. Um, and we experienced that on a worldwide level with the COVID pandemic. And so I think there were a lot of lessons in that that we can carry forward and put forth in how we treat ourselves and each other by being thoughtful about having a bit of grace um, for ourselves as we're putting uh, solutions forth to some of the, the world's toughest problems, I think it's important to be iterative and embrace that cycle. So I usually like to end the the episode with giving folks a little bit of advice um, from each of our guests. So could you share maybe some recommendations of either resources, books, other podcasts, places that you would go uh, recommend people go if they're interested in learning more about climate justice from the very basics, maybe to more nuanced in, um, issues? Like what would you recommend people looking at to understand more about this issue? Wow. Okay. Um, I, I think some resources that have uh, influenced me in how I think about climate justice include Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. 
that was an incredible book. There's some really great interactive activities in there too that folks can uh, connect with. Uh, I would recommend reading anything by Dr. Robert Bullard, um, who um, here in the U.S. is referred to as the father of the environmental justice movement. His books are uh, pivotal and foundational in in understanding environmental justice in, in the context of the United States. And he's, he's out there still um, as a leader and a revered uh, forefather on environmental justice solutions. And then I would say... I also look to poetry. You know, someone who uh, I really enjoy right now is Ross Gay. Ross Gay's poetry and his essays have really been influential for me as I'm thinking about my work. Um, And also uh, a peer of his, I hope I pronounce her name correctly, uh, Amy Nezuku Matatil, um, who's also a poet and an essayist and uh, has some really great work connecting her culture and identity to nature. Fantastic. Uh, We will include links to all of those, as many as we can find uh, in the show notes. But thank you so much, Liliana, for joining us today. This has been a super valuable conversation, and I think people will really enjoy the episode. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate you. (laughs) 